The Wiz Kids had won it, Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. All right, everybody, welcome on back to Baseball History One on One. As always, I'm Patrick Default, and I am joined here by my esteemed colleague, Matthew Carter. Hello. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about the All American Girls Baseball League. Most of y'all know that as Tom Hanks, Rosie O'Donnell, and Madonna. But there's a lot more to it that we're going to get into. Um, I'm sure most of y'all have seen the movie, and it started at World War II, and a bunch of exe- a bunch of major league executives. Um, they decided that with the men all at war, it was the right time to start a league to continue their revenue. It's like, what's the next best thing in men and women? Mm-hmm. Don't take take a joke, ladies. I'm trying to be funny here. Um, and um, Philip K. Wrigley, Cubs owner, mm-hmm. Wrigley Field, y'all can all put that together. Um, it was his idea, and um, along with Branch Rickey and Paul B. Harper, they were afraid that baseball was going to cease, so they created their own league, and the tri- they held tryouts at Wrigley in Chicago, mm-hmm. and they got a bunch of amateur softball games across the country and went and scouted ladies. Um, 200 women were invited to try out, and about 60 were selected for the league roster. Um, it was informally segregated, so there were no African Americans. So we weren't quite to the point of oh, man, racial harmony. trash. But you know, a different time, right? And we have just we have discussed earlier on this podcast. We're not going to argue with the periods, times, and their viewpoints of things, right? It was standard for time. Um, and they were selected for their skill play, but the player also had to fit what was seen by marketers as a wholesome female. Mm-hmm. And they um, started league play on May thirtieth, nineteen forty three. Um. And places they scouted talent from were the Chicago Softball Metropolitan League with several others. Um, so they basically made a professional baseball league out of the Chicago League. Yeah. That's what I'm reading. And they've, you know, and they basically, they, the league basically, all the teams stayed in the Midwest area. Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, you know. Hop on a train and get there. Yeah, I mean, it's just... They're not the travel is not a big factor into this, you know. And going back to you know, Philip Wrigley fearing that Major League Baseball might temporarily cease in war. I find that interesting because you know, in '42, Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis wrote to the president, Frank FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, saying, "Hey, if you want us to stop to go fight in the war, if you want us to stop baseball." To go find the war, we'll do it. And FDR said, no, we need to have baseball going on because it's good for morale. And it's also a good, you know, kind of a good distraction to not think about the horrors of war. So it's kind of like uh, 9-11, George Bush throwing out the first pitch. The first thing back was baseball. We're Americans. This is what we get. That's kind of how um, Landis was doing things. I would say in a similar vein, you know, 
But even then, but of course, as we discussed in the family episode with Paul Wainer being a substitute for the Yankees, you know, Major League Baseball was like, okay, we need players. So we had to get veterans and untested rookies to help fill our rosters. But, you know, Wrigley, when he was doing this, he felt that the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League is another way to keep baseball in the consciousness and the mainstream and also a way to, you know, I guess forget about the war going on in Europe. So, so more of a getaway from the reality. Yeah. So and when the troops come back, all our ballplayers come back, and we still have a market to sell our product. Yeah, and the thing is, women playing baseball was not some far-fetched idea in the 40s. Women have played baseball even in the early 20th century with a woman named Alta Weiss, who, if you re- if you watch the Ken Burns baseball documentary in the, in the 1900s episode, you know, she learned how to pitch, I guess, from her dad or something like that. You, you have to watch the episode again, but... She went on a barnstorming tour. You know, she pitched and she was a very good pitcher and she later became a doctor. And then, you know, Jackie, oh, what's her name? Not Jackie Mason. That's a, that's a, uh, the Chattanooga Lookouts lady. Uh, I can't think of her name. There's this Jack Mitchell, Jackie Mitchell. Sorry, guys. That, it's been a while since I've heard the story. You know, Jackie Mitchell in an exhibition game. In 1931, she pitched for the Chattanooga Lookouts in an exhibition game against the New York Yankees at Hingle Stadium, which is still there today in Chattanooga. You know, she struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig in an exhibition game. And, you know, people thought, oh, she was there, there, you know, Ruth and Gehrig was just doing that to, you know, doing that just to feel, you know, feel sorry for her. But no, they were actually trying hard. And, you know, you know, people thought it was a publicity stunt by Joe Engel, who was the owner of the Lookouts, but. No, she threw hard. But then after that, Judge Landis was like, no, you shouldn't, women shouldn't play. Women shouldn't play major or minor league baseball because it's just too strenuous on their on their bodies and stuff like that. So that's why it. But women could play baseball and women can play baseball, you know. So the reason I brought this topic up is I saw a video on Facebook the other day of the Peaches taking infield. Mocker Peaches, yeah. And they were just stabbing ground balls. Yeah, just- Hot shot in the hole, boom, stab, double play, turn. Crisp as major leaguers on TV today are, and this is in the damn 40s. Right. So don't ever don't ever assume that women cannot play baseball because women can play baseball. So, anyway. There's also a video I saw um, on Facebook yesterday. It was, um, I think it was Australia. They got a woman pitcher. Mm-hmm. And, um, I saw that too, yeah. She came in in the jam. She didn't strike out the side, but she got the side out. Yeah. Um, and she was throwing nasty hooks. Right. Her curveball was better than one I ever threw. And those of y'all that listen to this know I had a very mediocre curveball at best. But <laughs> this lady was was still good enough to pitch in college. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I got I got my school paid for. Yeah, you got school paid for. And um, she uh, but this girl, her hook was disgusting. I hope she stays in the Australian baseball league for a good long while. Um, she's free out of it. I'm willing to bet she'll get international rights here in the next year or two because the Yankees hired a woman coach yeah. for their um, single uh, low-A team. Tampa Tarkins, yeah. Which I hope that works out well because so she's too. been in the system for a while. Yeah. And at least she's working with low-I cats. They're going to be more willing with the woman thing. Yeah. Um, which I'm not saying she should not be there as a woman. But if she was to jump straight into the major leagues, I'm not sure she would get the respect that she deserves. Right. So she obviously earned her right to be there with yeah. the premier franchise of baseball. 
if she's going to get, if she's going to have managerial or coaching opportunities, start her in the minors before, you know, and let her work her way up. Here's the lowest level, work your way up. Right. You know, I mean, so women, that's a great thing that women love baseball, women play baseball, and women are in baseball in some capacity. So, we absolutely. Are, we are pro women in baseball. 1,000%. <laughs> We're not we're not being woke. We're just saying that you can't cancel us yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but going back to the, the the baseball league, so the first year was in 1943. They had four teams. So let's talk about some of the rules of the league. So in the first season of the AAG AAGPBL, uh, the league. The league played a game that was a hybrid of baseball and softball. The ball was 12 inches in circumference, which is the size of regulation softball. And regulation baseballs, for reference, are 9 to 9 and a fourth inches. The pitcher's mound was only 40 feet from home plate instead of 60 feet. Um, and, that's, and that was closer than even in regulation softball, and much closer, of course, in the baseball distance. Pitchers threw underhand windmill like softball, you said 46 foot? Yeah. It, 40 feet from home plate. Okay. For those of you at home to relate this, um, Little League is 46 feet. Yeah. And um, so that's, that's pitch softball is 40 feet. Yeah. So that's that's shorter than Little League. And so they threw, the pitchers threw underhand women like a softball, and the distance between the bases was only 65 feet which was five feet longer than in softball, but 25 feet shorter than in baseball because it's 90 feet, you know, in baseball. Some of the similarities between the AAGPBL and, and Major League Baseball include nine player, you know, nine player teams, obviously, and the use of the pitcher's mound. And 1948, so by 1948, the ball shrunk from 12 inches in circumference to 10 and 3 eighths inches. And then overhand pitching was allowed at, 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 by 1948, and the mound was moved back to 50 feet. But the ball was still bigger than a baseball. It was still bigger than a baseball. Because baseball is what nine and a quarter on average. Yeah, nine. Like yeah, yeah, nine and a quarter, as we talked. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's differences. And then over the history of the league, the rules continued to gradually approach those of regular baseball. And by the last season in 1954, the ball was regulation baseball size. And the mound was moved back to 60 feet. And the base pass were extended to 85 feet, which is still less than Major League Baseball, but still. And we were six inches short on the mound. Yeah. But so it seems like since the since the first season, they changed the rules to gradually get the players more used to. An adjustment period. An adjustment period. To get them more used to Major League, Minor League, regulation baseball uh, distances. So I was like, okay, you know, that, that's cool. You're easing them in. Right, because you know you're with when you get all the softball people on the teams in '43, and then you're getting used to baseball, and then you make the changes, and then they're like, okay, we're going to gradually, you know, we're going to gradually do this, and we're going to get used to throwing and be similar to actual regulation baseball. I will tell you this for a fact: it's a lot harder to hit an underhand, underhand fast pitch softball pitch yeah. than an overhand baseball pitch. When I was at uh, Jeff State in Birmingham. I'm going to leave her name out, but uh, her name starts with an M. If she's listening, she'll know who I'm talking about. She lined us up on the damn tennis courts of the apartment one night and said, none of y'all are going to hit this. 
we marked it off to the foot, that underhand, the way softball works. You make a ball go up, make a ball go down, left, right. But I had a couple All-American guys that played with us. Couldn't touch it. Couldn't sniff it. Oh, wow. The, the underhand, that's, a, that's something different. As a baseball guy, that's something different. She lined us all up and said, none of y'all are touching us. And she was right. Now, the teams were managed by men. They were generally managed by men who were known competitive athletics and were former major league players. For example, Baseball Hall of Famer Max Carey was a manager of one of a couple of these teams. And I think, I believe Jimmy Fox was as well, or at least he was a coach. Because I remember in the, you know, watching the King Burns baseball episode in the 40s, where they're talking about the girls' baseball, there's a footage of Jimmy Fox wearing a uniform of one of the teams that he was coaching or managing, showing a player how to hit a bat, like hold, hold, hold a bat. So, you know, that brings some credibility to this league. You're getting former major leaguers to manage your team. That's going to also bring fan interest and hopefully fans in the seats. You know, it's like, oh, we can see these former major league players manage girls in baseball. So that's, you know. Guys that were too old to go to war. Right. Like Max Carey was in his 50s. Jimmy Fox just turned like 40 or was getting to be in his 40s. They're not playing anymore. They're too old to fight. So go man, you know, stay in. And they want to stay in baseball. So they go manage and get involved in the American, All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. So that's really cool. Tom Hanks had a big hand in that too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the salaries, so they were above average for women. Yeah, get, they um, they were making forty five to eighty five a week. Yeah. Um, and that's in the forties. In two thousand twenty dollars, that was between six hundred and seventy and twelve hundred and seventy. And then after a couple years in the league, they were making about one hundred twenty five a week, which is. About $1,245 yeah. in 2020 money, which is probably more now with inflation and we don't do politics, but, you know. Yeah, you know. And the uniforms, they were worn by female ballplayers. The, the uniforms worn by female ballplayers consisted of a belted, short sleeve tunic dress with a slight flare on the skirt, a slight flare of the skirt. Rules stated that the skirts to be worn no more than six inches above the knee, but regulation was most often ignored in order to facilitate running and fielding. So we're willing to negate some rules to enable athleticism. Yeah. And, of course, the logo of the team was on this, you know, was sewn onto the front of each dress and ball caps featured in elastic bands in the back so that they were one size fits all. And of course, during that spring, wouldn't fly today. <laughs> yeah, and when the ladies went to spring training, which I believe was in Florida, yeah, they had to go to charm school. Yeah, they had to go to charm school, which I, which was also showed, you know, that was uh, portrayed in the uh, the League of Their Own movie mm-hmm. about the the charm school scene. If you haven't seen League of Their Own or watched Ken Burns' baseball documentary, please do both. Yeah. Yep. And so they had to go to charm school, evening charm school classes, led by Helena Rubenstein. And the proper etiquette for every situation was taught, and every aspect of personal hygiene, mannerisms, and dress code was presented to all the players. In an effort to make each player as physically attractive as possible, each received a beauty kit and instructions on how to use it. As part of the league's rules of conduct, the girls were not permitted to have short hair, 
They could not smoke or drink in public places. They were not allowed to wear pants. And they were required to wear lipstick at all times. So that may not, that's not going to fly. That's still a thing now. What's it called? Cotillion? Cotillion. Yeah, I forgot about that. Is that what it's called? Cotillion? I believe it is because that, that's in Huntsville. I believe Huntsville. Uh, I think every town, every town has, has their own version of it, probably. Yeah, I mean. Like you can't even become Miss Coleman unless you went to Cotillion, more right. than likely. They don't. They don't want. I mean, basically, you're saying they don't want bush ladies. No, they want polished-up women, right? You to you, come play this game, right? You're gonna look like a lady and act like a lady, and don't don't be cussing on the ball field, you know, or in in public, or do things that men like to do after a game, you know, like smoke and drink. I ain't got a problem with them cussing on the ball field, but they. Were, I feel like off the field, everybody wanted to see these pristine ladies. Right. They Get the want, dudes all horned up and whatnot, for lack of a better term. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. And fines for not following the league's rules of conduct were $5 for the first offense, 10 for the second, and then suspension for the third. And the next, so in 44, the second season, Josephine Jojo D'Angelo was fired for cutting her hair short. That's not good. The women's contracts were much stricter about behavior than in the men's league. And each team was also assigned its own chaperone by the league. So every team had a chaperone to make sure everybody was on the up and up and did uh, was in bed at a certain time and all that. So we're saying is Steinbrenner went the first with the hair policy. Yeah, so this is <laughs> this was pre-Steinbrenner. Maybe Steinbrenner took a couple pointers from the AAGPBL in, in regards to the hair Hey, every team I ever played on that was playing for something real and not a men's league had the same rules. Right. You know, I mean. They're not going to be unkempt. Right, you gotta present yourself in a somewhat professional manner, and so the AAGPBL received extensive publicity from its inception throughout the 1940s. There were a ton of magazines and newspapers. Yeah, I mean, um, Time, Live, Seventeen, Newsweek, um, American Magazine, which I don't think is a thing anymore. No, um, and of course, newspapers nationwide. Yeah, um, and Wrigley. Oh, sorry, you go ahead. And Wrigley, yeah. Um, I was going to say, he he was a big guy on advertising. That's why Wrigley Gum's still a damn thing. Yep. And um, and he that that's very widely attributed to why the league did so well. Mm-hmm. Um, he learned to appreciate his, adver- his advertising from his dad, William Wrigley, who started the gum company. Yeah. And um, just because of marketing, that's the reason Wrigley Gum's still around. And um, until 1951 when the owners and team directors took over the publicity. Right. Like he was marketing that league on his own. Yeah. And after that, they, he let the other, the other teams market themselves. And a guy named Arthur E. Mayhoff was the advertise principal advertising guy. Yeah. Meyerhoff. And, um, he focused on the value of national exposure in magazines. Yep. That's why he's um, time and all that. And he grew the league through that. And, um, Themes that really characterized the league were recreation, recreation, not recreation, recreation for war workers, mm-hmm. femininity, which that's a big topic now, um, community welfare, also a big topic now, and family, family entertainment. You know, just come to the ballpark, have a good time. Yep. And then um, 1951, the league, they decided that they, um, didn't want a centralized league administration. So the responsibility was on the individual teams and owners and promoters to progress the game in women's baseball. 
Yep. Um, but they were always effective because of their lack of expertise. And in the early 50s, Fred Leo asked the presidents to do a little more, and it didn't work out the best. Yeah. And due to the, due to the decentralized league administration, many of the promotion effects from team management were aimed exclusively at local populaces and not nationally. There were many promotional events with players, children's benefits, civic groups, and holiday celebrations. Along with daily reports, the primary advertising strategy was radio broadcasts. Makes sense. Uh, the AAG PBL peaked in attendance in, 19, in the 1948 season when 10 teams attracted 910,000 paid fans. And the Rockford so that's peaked. like 91... Uh, what? 90, what's the map on that? 9,100 a team? Yeah. I mean, 10 teams divided by... Uh, 910,000. 9,100 team? Sorry. I, I, believe I so. suck at math. Sorry, guys. Well, my mom's a math teacher. I could ask her. Or, you know, I'm <laughs> We're going to do it right now. 910,000. 9,100 times 10. That's 91,000. You mean divided by 10? Yeah. It's 91,000. Then basically, each team averaged 91,000. For the that, whole season. For the whole season. So it's that's like the Huntsville Stars in their last years. Yeah. Which, I hated that. Which, for like, if you're a minor league team and you're averaging 91,000, like if your season 10 is 91,000, that's bad. You but, should get that in a weekend. Right. But if you're, if it's girls baseball, that's different. So. Especially during wartime when a lot of the men love baseball are away. Yeah. I mean, it, but of course, this, but the 48 season, you know, war's over and people are back and they're like, hey, let's go to the ball game. Let's go see women's baseball. Let's so when did uh, Major League Baseball come back? Major League Baseball is still going on, but like I guess when all the players came back was the '46 season. Ted Williams came back, DiMaggio came back, Bob Feller came back. Of course, uh, Greenberg came back in '45. He helped them lead the Tigers to the World Series that year. If you ever get a chance to make it to the USS Mobile in Mobile, Alabama, um, they have Ted Williams' bunk set up still. No, wait, not Ted Williams. Um, Bob Feller. Bob Feller. It's USS Alabama. USS Alabama in Mobile. In Mobile. Yeah. Yes. Bob it's Feller. really cool. Like and. That's the cool thing. If you're in the South and get a chance to go there, it's worth doing. Yeah. It's not a crazy expensive. I think it's like 20 bucks to do the whole park. Especially since Mobile is not a minor league team anymore. You might as well go there. <laughs> yeah, they moved here. <laughs> yeah, they moved here. <laughs> they moved to Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah. And so, and we're going to talk about the teams, but the Rockford Peaches was probably the most well-known team out of the teams that have played in the AAGPBL. And they won the most championships, 1945. So they won four of them, 1945, 48, 49, 50. So that makes sense. And, of course, they were portrayed in a league of their own. So that's why most people, when they think of girls' women's baseball in the 40s, they think of the Rockford Peaches. They're the most well-known team. And the movie, uh, League of Their Own, also facilitates that, which is why we're kind of joking about the stars of that movie. Yeah. Um, And then the Memphis, the Milwaukee slash Grand Rapids Chicks, yeah, they won three combined over their move. They won once in Milwaukee and twice in Grand Rapids. So 44 in Milwaukee and 47 and 53 in Grand Rapids. And when they won in, in Milwaukee, uh, I believe Max Carey was the manager of the team. So that's cool. And then you had the Racing Bells in 43 and 46. Yep. And the South Bend Blue Sox with 51 52 with two each. And then the last season of the league in 1954, the Kalamazoo. Which sounds fictional. Just that town as a whole. Kalamazoo sounds fictional. Kalamazoo, Michigan, yeah. But the Lassies, I swear, uh, Derek Jeter's from. Yep. Um, they won the fight league championship in 1954. The last one. And 
of course, everybody knows that the darn movie, but <laughs> League of Their Own. And, of course, Gina Davis, who played Stuart Little's mom and Stuart Little, was in there, too. As Dottie? No, was she Dottie? No, no. Penny and Marshall directed it, you know. Now, there's one thing that the... There's one thing in that movie that I need to set the record straight on. So, at the end of the movie, and, of course, this is fiction. We all know... Well, the whole movie is a fictional movie, but there's a scene where, at the end, all the... All the pl girls players in the AAG, AAG PBL got inducted to the Hall of Fame. That's 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 not true. Let's get let's say the right. Are there any players from that league in the Hall of Fame? No, there's an exhibit about women's baseball in the Hall of Fame. I wish I di oh diamonds, something with diamonds. I can't think of the name of the, the exhibit right now. Like diamonds in the rough or something like that. Yeah, or, like you know. Doll, diamond, I don't see diamond dolls. That's, that's, that's cheesy. That's the people that brought me snacks when I was playing ball. Yeah. Right, same thing. Yeah, Grissom, Grissom had diamond yeah, dolls. Yeah, we had them in college. You know. Anyway, so it, it, there's an exhibit, and they talk about women's baseball and women in baseball. But the only woman who's inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame is former uh, former uh, Newark Eagles owner Effa Manley. You know, she's the only woman inducted to the Hall of Fame. Is that because the Baseball Hall of Fame is strictly Major League Baseball? Strictly Major League and, of course, Negro Leagues, which are recognized by Major League Baseball. Which I'm sure that was a lighter thing for the Hall of Fame to start recognizing Negro Leagues. Right. But they didn't They didn't let their first so, like first candidate – they didn't let the first player that was solely on their Negro League stats till Satchel Page in 71. You know, and Jackie Robinson got inducted in season two, but he only spent one year with the Kansas City Monarchs. It's all in his Major League career, not his right. – one year with the Monarchs. So the Baseball Hall of Fame is just strictly Major League. Yeah, strictly. Yeah, and that's why they're not. That's why they're not. But doing they do it. have an exhibit because they influence the game. Right. And same thing okay. with like Latin, like, you know, if you're good in Cuban baseball or Mexican baseball, like, you're not going to get in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame if your entire career, most of your career is in Cuba. You right. Know? But they have an exhibit of Latin American baseball because of. Baseball's influence in Latin America and how it's big down there. You oh, know. especially look at rosters today. Yeah. Back in the day, it was a predominantly Caucasian American sport. Yep. And if you look at it today, like the Braves last week signed, um, I think it was eight or nine international players. Yeah. I mean, there's more international players than there are African-American players in Major League Baseball, which is sad, but sad for African-Americans, you know, but – you know, it's just they they rather play football and basketball. They don't want to deal with minor leagues, you know. Um, I played college ball with a couple of cats that were from Latin America, and they homeschooled, quote-unquote, yeah. and went and played baseball eight hours a day like it was a full-time job. They did. And it's a little different. They basically did the Tim Tebow rule? Or no, no, that's something else. Um, they're like, they were they were homeschooled, quote-unquote, yeah, and yeah. they played baseball all day. Yeah. <laughs> Not much and one of the guys I played with is – he was on TV very briefly, cup of coffee kind of cat. Yeah. And the other one was minor league cat. Man, they just – it's a it's a whole different dynamic, man. Yeah. You know. But, anyway, you know, but – so, now that it – let's talk about the teams. Let's talk about all the teams. Well, hold on a second. Let's see. We might as well start with the Peaches. Yeah, the Rockford Peaches, they're the well-known – the most well-known out of all of them. They were based in Rockford, Illinois, which is west, way west of Chicago. It's like in the north, in the northern Illinois 
northern middle Illinois, like somewhere close to the Wisconsin border. And they were there for the whole tenure. They were one of the original four teams who played in 1943. It was them, the South Bend Blue Sox, the Racine Bells, and the Kenosha Comets. And the Peaches, as well as the South Bend Blue Sox, were the only two teams that played from the league's inception to its end. And we can look it up. The Peaches... You know, they they had a red logo. Their logo that they wore on on their uh, jersey is the logo of the city of Rockford. You know, it's red. It's the city of Rockford and black letters. Yeah, it's got um, it's kind of like what you see the statue up on a courthouse. It's got two weighing scales. Yeah, and so and they and their colors were red and black, just like the University of Georgia, the now national champions in football. And they played at a stadium called Byer Stadium. And, you know, and it was a former minor league park, but it was also used. I mean, it was, it was a multi-purpose stadium. Like, we played football there and stuff like that. Also, like, Matt, I'm sorry to interrupt you. There yeah. is a website, aagpbl.org. Yes. It's the official website still to this day of the All-American Girls Baseball League. If you'd like to donate to them having the history, they have their own museum and whatnot, please yeah. go do such a thing. Um. And they do articles and stuff. It's kind of like a Baseball Hall of Fame-esque website all about the girls' league. Yeah. And, you know, there's... You know, there are many good players... There are many great players on the team. Um, Dorothy Kamenshek, who also went by Dottie. I believe she went by Dottie. Yeah, she went by Dottie or Cammie. Is that the one that Rosie O'Donnell played in the movie? I I feel like that was a character in the movie. She was portrayed by Gina Davis. Gina Davis, okay. As Dottie Henson. That was her character, but it was based on Kamashek. And she played for the Rockford Peaches from 1941 to 53, and then, I'm sorry, 1943 to 51, and then 1953. And she was a seven time All Star um, in the league. She won two batting championships. She's the all time league leader in hits and total bases. And, you know, She's in the National Women's Baseball Hall of Fame ducked in 2010, which was the year she passed away. So that was probably, you know, there was a Dottie in the movie, and there was Dottie here. You know, there was a real Dottie. It just wasn't Dottie Henson. It was Dottie Kamachek. And then one of their pitchers, Olive Little, she pitched the first no-hitter in both team and league history. It was, in, it was on June 10th, 1943. And that season, she also won 21 games. So she was a very good pitcher. Even though she was tagged for two runs in that game, but I guess they were from walks or errors. You know. But still, a no-hitter is a no-hitter. I can be literally. I, I count that. That's... Yeah. I never had one. And I've pitched in so many damn baseball games. Right. So you, that's something that they can never take away from Olive Little. You know. You, know, you throw a no-hitter, it doesn't matter... If there's runs on the board, if there's no hits, you you threw a no hitter. It could be against the school for the blind. If you throw a no hitter or a perfect game, yeah. Now, unfortunately, there are no, as of 2020, there are no more living former Rockford Peaches. The last one, Mary Pratt, she passed away in 2020 at the age of 101. 
But still, you know. And some of their managers, I mean, Eddie Stunt, like these guys, I just don't even recognize them. I don't even recognize guys. Oh, wait, Johnny Rawlings, who managed near the end of the their time. He played for the New York Giants and the Reds and the Pirates and, and the Braves in the 20, in 19s and 20s. So that's a name I recognize for like managers. You know, all these other guys like Eddie Stump, Jack Clausa, Bill Allington, William Edwards, and Bill Alling. Bill Allington again. You know, I just don't recognize the names, but this is the most well-known team in the history. And the movie, A League of Their Own. If you haven't seen it, like I said, go see it. Great yeah. film. So, um, and then the next best and well-known team is the Racine Bills. Yep, Racine and Racine um, They're from Racine, Wisconsin. Um, they won the inaugural championship, and they played their uh, home games at Horlick Field. Which is still there, by the way. Um, it was donated by William Horlick, the inventor of malted milk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was designed in 1907 by Walter Dick, and he also designed the North Beach House. I'm not sure what that is, but I'm not sure that it applies either. And um, they, they wore the brown and gold. Um they claimed the first championship in 1943. Um, they won the first half 33-10. and 10. That's a wagon right there. Mm-hmm. And they finished the regular season overall 55-38. and 38. So they were playing um, 90, 93 games. Yep. Um, and their pitching staff went 26-13 and 13 with a 667 win percentage, which was fifth best in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had 308 innings of work and 47 appearances. So their bullpen really was, I guess – the bolster with them. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, let me let me rephrase that. Mary Nesbitt, Mary Nesbitt led the pitching staff with those numbers. She was twenty six and thirteen, six sixty seven winning percentage, fifth best in the league, three hundred eight innings. That's two major league starters. Yeah, today. Yeah, um, that's two major league starters today. Mm-hmm. Um. 308 innings, 47 appearance. She also, on her slash line, 280, scored 34 runs, and drove in 29 in 73 games. Mm-hmm. And um, she put together an 11-game winning streak. And besides Nebitz, besides Nebit, Nesbitt, um, there's a lady named jo- Joanne Winter that went 11-11 that helped with that team. Mm-hmm. Then they had a right filler, Eleanor Dacus. She hit a league league 10 home runs, which, you know, for ladies' ball, not trying to demean the ladies, but 10 home runs, that's a stout number. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had a 44 base stiller who scored 60, so they had a lady with wheels. Um, her name was Sophie Curis. K-U-R-Y-S. Yeah. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. If, if, if one of our family members listen, I botched it. Let us know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had three or four of those. Margaret Danhauser, Matty English, Edith Perlick, um, and they were good batsmen. Batswomen. And they um, played against the Kenosha Comets, the second half champ. So it's kind of like a minor league system. Like if the Trash Pandas were from Huntsville. Rock City Trash Pandas. If yep. they win the first half, they get to play against the second half winner in the championship, unless they win both halves for this. Uh, it's not in the Southern League anymore. That's of a couple years ago, but it's that kind of deal. And um, Nesbitt, she went complete games in game one and three, and it's got a save in game two. And 
I love old school baseball where you just rubber arm. Just pitching whenever. Yeah. Such a um, pace that rubber arm, man. In 46, they had a lady named Anna Mae Hutchison. She went 26 and 14 with 102 strikeouts, the league record, in 51 games. Second all-time season single season record for games pitch. That might almost hold up in Major League Baseball. Yeah. And their season's shorter. Yep. Um, she also heard the first nine-inning no-hitter in the Bells history with a 1-0 win over Kenosha. Nice. The comments. Um, she went 33-9 and that season. That sounds like a good rivalry. 43, rec- 43 wins on record. 43, or 43 uh, starts on record. Yeah, 43 starts, yeah. On record. Not counting the ones where she might have got a no decision. That's absurd. Yep. 17 shutouts. And they were first place in um, with a 74-38 record. So they, I feel like they expanded the season because now we're at 102 games. And they um, won the semifinal playoffs, beating the South Bend Blue Sox in four games. And then in game one, she even drove in the winning run with a double. Yes. And then in game five, she drove it in with a single. So that's uh, what? Mrs. October? Mrs. October. There you go. <laughs> um, but the Bells had – they had eight seasons, and they ran out of the financial resources to keep the Cubs in Racine. And they moved to Battle Creek, Michigan at the end of 1950. And some of the founding team members, um, Dan Hauser, Dacus, English, Curious Parlick, pretty much the whole crew were really upset with the new location and didn't move with them. And in the eight years after, they were a close-knit team, a family away from the family, and it, it was renamed the Battle Creek Bells, and they played from 51 and 52, and they moved to Muskegon, Michigan. That's where my mom was born. Cool. And they were the Muskegon Bills. Well, all right. And so, in another note, in 1945, the team won the attendance trophy for having the largest audience, well, you know, largest crowd on opening night on May 23rd that year with 4,019 fans. And before that, they were also, so, hold on a second. Saw it somewhere. There was a minor league team from 1909 to 1913 in the Wisconsin Illinois League that was also called the Racine Bells. And then mm-hmm. also in 1950s, well, they played a season there. And the name, the Racine Bells, lives on. And now, in, in today, which now refers to a nonprofit organization dedicated to the development of girls' faster softball in southeastern Wisconsin. So that's cool. You know, the name. Yes, 1,000%. Yeah, like similar to, you know, the all the, the Orioles and the Padres being minor league teams before it became major league teams. You know, this is something like, you know, this was a minor league team before it became a women's baseball team. So that's pretty cool. I got something else I want to touch on right here. Okay. Um, I'm on the Wikipedia page right now for um, the Racine Bells. Mm-hmm. And there's a section called Chaperones. There's a lady named Irene Hickson, mm-hmm. born born August of 1915, died in November of 95, and she was a catcher who played from 43 to 51 in the league, five foot two, 116 pounds, righty righty. Born Chattanooga, died in Racine, and she was listed as chaperone for the team. She was a career 171 hitter, but she was very opportune, and after she was done playing. 
Um, she opened up a restaurant in Racine called The Home Plate, which she ran for 22 years until her death. And um, a and a, a, a apartment chain, she managed a, a department store chain. Zayer. Um, Zayer, yep. And um, so even though she was done playing, she was there to mentor the ladies. And I think that that's a really cool fact. Um, she's a part of women in baseball on the permanent display. At Hall the Baseball Hall of Fame, as you were talking about earlier. Yep. Um, and, um, and I'll let me read this to y'all. She's a part of the Women in Baseball, a permanent display based at the Baseball Hall of Fame Museum in Cooperstown. It was unveiled on November 5th, 1988, in honor of the All American Girls Professional Baseball, which we were talking about, and rather than individual personalities. And after that, Penny Marshall premiered her 1992 league film, her own. And um, that brought the whole thing to her, and it's kind of cool that she's a one of the factors of what made all that happen. Yep. And she died naturally at the age of eighty in her own home. Cool. And so the next team would be staying in Wisconsin would be the Kenosha Comets. Again, one of the f- four founding members of the team. And the team played their games. Well, they played from 1943 to 1951. They played their home games at Lakefront Stadium in Kenosha, but they later moved to Simmons Field, which is still there today. It was a minor league stadium. Now I think a uh, a summer collegiate league team plays there now. We were talking about the logo on the Rockford Peaches chest earlier. The one for the Kenosha Comets is not much different, except it has a damn bird with wings above it. And yes. Yeah. Not a difference in between other than that. No. And the, their colors were green and white. So think New York Jets colors. And so, and of course, as we mentioned, they were in the, they were runners up of the championship, you know, the first championship. They originally were going to be called the Shamrocks, hence the green and white. But they were renamed after the first game of the season. To the Comets. It does not say why they were named to the Comets, but whatever. It's a nice, you know, it's a, you know, it's a competitive name. Now, 1943, they third best in the league. Yeah. 56 and 52, but they won the second half title and got to go play the Racine Bells, who yep. we've already talked about. Now, I, I need to mention that in 43, that first year, they had a, the Comets had a pitcher named Helen Nicole. And she won thirty-one games for the for the uh, for the team. That's, won, what, that's how many games Major League starters start. Right. She went thirty-one and eight, and I got that from the eight the All American Girls Professional Baseball League website, where it has an actual database of all the players and chaperones and managers and others who are associated with the league. And I I saw that stat. I was like, damn, thirty-one games. That you know, and like. You know, at the time, the major leagues hadn't had a 30 game winner since Dizzy Dean in 1934. So, you know, that first year you win 31 games, that's impressive. I don't care if you're a woman or not, a man or a woman, doesn't matter. That's impressive. You win 30 games, wow. That's yeah. how many games a major league starter starts now. Yeah. And if, she, if that, if that, you know. And she just passed away last year at the age of 101. So she lived a good long life. She got her money's worth from she, that. Yeah, she got her money's worth for sure. She got the price of admission. Yeah. And then later, she also played for the Rockford Peaches after four seasons. 
Well, for 43, 47, she's with the Comets. And then in the, near, in the middle of the 47 season, she got traded to the Peaches where she did her career in 52. And she was a, it says triple crown winner, but the the, the year says 1940. So I think that's a miss, miss thing on Wikipedia. She won the triple crown, which I guess would be the pitching triple crown because she was a pitcher. Strikeouts, yeah. batting average, innings pitch? Yeah. No. Strikeouts, ERA, and wins. Wins, that's it. Yes. Yeah. And I was a pitcher. When she was with the Peaches, she, <laughs> she won three straight championships with the Peaches. So getting traded from the Comets to the Peaches worked out in her favor. Yeah, she had to go play for a better team. All right. And she she was Canadian, and she is she got inducted to the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame in 1998. So that's cool. You know. And then, you know, other players like Audrey Wagner, who was a slugger, you know, Lois Florike, Florich. Yeah, um, yeah. She was, um, she played from 43 to 50 for three different teams. Um, five foot five, 140 pound, um, righty, righty again. Um, yeah. She played for the South Bend Blue Sox, the Comets, and then the Peaches at the end of her career. Yep. Um, three-time All-Star, three-time championship team. Um, she um, set the all-time season record for lowest ERA in 49. Mm-hmm. She was the two-time single season, le- single season leader in strikeouts. She led the league in strikeouts to 49-50. Mm-hmm. Innings pitch in 49. Tied um, single season leader in CGs, complete games in 49. And um, at the same time, she was fleet foot on base. Um she has she's tied for the all-time record for most stolen bases in the game in 94 and she threw a no-no in 48 yeah and also a future store future shortstop article I plan to write there's a picture from 1947 of the 1947 Kenosha comments and it's a picture with them and Friend of the show, Connie Mack and Al Simmons. I like how you call him friend of the show. Yeah. Because <laughs> he gets free off so much. And I'm going to pay for you to get a Connie Mack tattoo. <laughs> right here on the side of your neck. No. <laughs> no. No tattoos. Anyway. Um, You're a big fan of that guy. Yeah. And, I did, and I'm doing research on it. And they... It was during the season, like they the A's played a game in Chicago against the White Sox, and then of course it's a day game. And right after the game, him and uh, Mack and Simmons took a train up to Kenosha, which is not too far from Chicago. And they were guests at the game because the manager of the team, Ralph Shinners, was a personal friend of both uh, Simmons and Mack. And I think Shinners was also from Milwaukee, just like uh, Al Simmons was. So you know, Wisconsin natives, they knew each other. I obviously they knew Connie Mack, so they got invited, and so I think that's a <clears throat> that's a shortstop article that I plan to write in the future. So be on the lookout for that whenever it comes out. Anyway, so I love yeah. how you I love how you still get to write those articles. I do oh, too. Okay. So uh, yeah, man, just so they played from forty three to fifty one. They for most of the time they weren't a good team. And their last season, they finished in sixth place in the league with a 36-71 record, and the team folded. Like, they didn't move to another city like the Racing Bells did. They just folded. So, they're gone. But, you know, I'm sure they – I believe they're fondly remembered in Kenosha and, of course, in AAG PBL history. So. Um, 
I think the next team we need to talk about is the Grand Rapids Chicks. Grand Rapids Chicks, yeah. Um, they were in Grand Rapids Mission, obviously. Um, they were there from uh, 45 to 54. They won championships twice in 47 and 53. The colors were red and white. Um, they played at uh, the, the South High School field from 45 to 49. And they played at a place called Bigelow Field which I can't find anything about, 50-52. And then they went back to the high school field in 53-54. to 54. Mm-hmm. Um, They were actually owned by the league. Oh, that's cool. They were owned by the AAGPBL. You think that'd be a bad thing, hence MLB owning the Expos or something like that, you know? <laughs> and kind of the Brewers there for a minute. Yeah. Um, um, I wonder if the Milwaukee Chicks... Uh, with the Memphis chicks and is there any relation there? Um, well, different I mean, conversation. Yeah. But, um, they won the 44 championship, but they couldn't compete with the Brewers for ticket sales. And they moved to Grand Rapids. Yep. So yeah, because that yeah, it started at 44 with Max Carey as the manager. And then after that, they- um, after the move, they had success and they made playoffs every single year from, uh, 45 to 54. Mm-hmm. Um, they had stars, Connie Wisniewski. Yep. 5'8", um, 147 pound. Um, she won player of the year in 45, four-time All-Star, once as a pitcher, three years as an uh, outfielder. She was on two championship teams, been playoffs eight times, single season record in wins and inning pitch in 46 and 45, respectively. Um, postseason record for most wins in 44. And she was the two-time season leader in ERA, 45-46, as well as still the single season leader in wins, 46, 40, wins, 46, home runs, 48, and total bases, 48. Those are years, not numbers. Um, and, um, she joined the Chicks, which had a squad at the time when she joined them. Um, there's another lady, Alma Ziegler, in 50. Um, multiple pitching tiles of the team. Wisniewski, Earp, Mildred Earp in 47, Alice Haylett in 48, and then Ziegler in 50. And they were pretty much building the all-star team around them for a while. Um, they were managed 45 to 47 by a guy named Benny Meyer, 48 to 50 by a guy named Johnny Rawlings. Who I just mentioned. Yeah. Does he have any relation to the glove company Rawlings? I don't know. That's a good question. Let me see. Click on this. Didn't really make the uh, connection. It doesn't say anything about it, so I'm going to admit. And then a guy named Mitch Scupian, S K U P I E N. He's 51 52, and then a guy named Morty English. Um, they consistently finished above 500, except for. I finished above 500 every year in their existence, and they won a couple championships. Um, that's really. What there is to say about the uh, Grand Rapids Chicks? Oh, one one more thing. They had a pitcher on the team named Annabelle Lee, who was the knee not knee sorry the net the aunt of former Major League Baseball player Bill Lee, Bill Spaceman Lee. Spaceman, the Spaceman. Have you seen that documentary about him yet? I have not. I heard it's good. He's absurd. He is a very, I mean, I've seen But he owns it. Owned it. You owned it? Yeah, yeah he's, he's a weird cat. I saw, uh, 
I saw him at the induction ceremony this past year. He was there. He was in Cooperstown. We we locked eyes, but we didn't really say hey. He's that documentary about Spaceman. Yeah. If you hadn't seen it. But Annabelle Lee was no slouch, just like her nephew. She was no slouch on the mound. She played from forty four to well, forty four to forty eight, and then again in fifty. And she pitched a perfect game in forty four with the Minneapolis Millerettes. Which, I like that, the Millerettes. Yeah, because the minor league team in Minneapolis at the time was the Millers, and then they briefly had a um, they briefly had a, a girls team called the Millerettes. And she pitched a perfect game for them in 44, and then she pitched a no hitter in 45 with the Fort Wayne Daisies, who replaced the Millerettes Miller because they pulled it after the season. Because they, Just like the Milwaukee Chicks can compete with the Milwaukee Brewers, the Millerettes can compete with the Millers. Yeah, so they moved to Fort Wayne. Yeah. So you wonder why you wonder how Billy, you know, got his pitching prowess. It was probably because of his aunt, Annabelle Lee. So I just thought I had to mention that. So yeah, the Fort Wayne uh, Daisies—they didn't—they don't have quite the history a lot of other teams had. Um, they debuted in '45. They went 62 and 47 debut and finished four and a half games behind the Rockford Peaches. Yeah, and their colors were. Think of the Incredibles movie. They were red. Oh, 100%. Yeah. They were red, yellow, and black. So, you know, think of the Incredibles logo, but with EFW instead of, you know, the Incredible yeah. logo. And um, I highly recommend y'all at least looking at the Wikipedia pages of these teams, or at least doing a Google search on them. There's a lot of really cool vintage pictures and stuff you can see. Yeah. Um, but the, they debuted in 45, and they went 62 and 47. And even though they made it to the playoffs every year from 48 to 54, um, even winning first place in the division 51 to 54, they never won a title. So it's kind of like the Braves of the 90s. Yeah. We're good enough, but we can't seal the deal. They were a competitive team. And let's see. Hold on a second. You mentioned Betty Foss already, correct? I don't believe so. Um, Betty Foss was one of their big players. Um, she was an infielder and outfitter, 50 to 54. Um, once again, another player of the year in 52, two-time all-star team, two-time batting champion, 50 and 51, rookie of the year in 50, five playoff appearance, all-time leader in doubles with 117, and the single season records for hits, doubles, and triples. Mm-hmm. At, um, in 1953, 1951, and 1952, respectively. That's kind of cool to do it different. Yeah. In three different years on different categories. And the, yeah, like her and Joanne Weaver and Helen Callaghan, those players on the Fort Wayne Daisies, between three of them, they won six of the league's batting crowns. That set a league record. They're, you know, this Big team, time poppers. Yeah, this team had three batting champions on their team. In many, in multiple years in the league, and they couldn't win the, they just couldn't win at all. You know, the, the Rockford Peaches and all of them were just, they were just better, you know. But still, they were a competitive team, and some of their managers, Bill Wamsgans, who, if you know anything about baseball trivia, you know that Wamsgans, when he was with the Cleveland Indians, he is the only person to turn an unassisted triple play in World Series history in 1920. So he was their first manager, 
and then you got a bunch of other guys. Max Carey managed them for a while, and then Jimmy Fox managed them, as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of this. So they mentioned they both managed the Fort Wayne Daisies for a time. As well as Bill Ellington, who I previously mentioned. You know, okay, that's cool. It's kind of a revolving door, it seems like. Yeah. And the Daisies, they played at two different parks. They played at Northside High School. And then during from 45 to 46, and then during the 46 season, they moved to Memorial Park. And so they did that. They had two fields. And yeah, that's about all I can say about the Fort Wayne Daisies. Now, there's a bunch of other teams, and we're gonna, I'm going to name them. We're not going to go all into them. The South Bend Blue Sox, which I don't think we talked about, but that's one of the founding teams of the league, 43-54, the same whole time. The Muskegon Lassies, who was the team before the Muskegon Bells, they played from 46 to 49. And they wind up becoming the Kalamazoo Lassies, if I'm they, mistaken. They, yeah, they moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan, became Kalamazoo Lassies from 50 54. Chicago briefly had a team called the Chicago Colleens, which only stayed for one season. Springfield Sally. In Springfield, Illinois, one season. The Peoria Red Wings in Peoria, Illinois. South Bend Blue Sox. Yep, South Bend Blue Sox, we mentioned. And yeah, that's about it for all the teams in the league. All Have you heard about the uh, Rockford Peaches yet? <laughs> yeah, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. 15. I counted 15, but a lot of them moved, so they were right. different entities. So I'm really, I'm really looking at it, I think it's really more like 12. Yeah, but uh, multiple teams played for this league. And so there was there's one thing we need to mention that does not get talked about, if any. The, during the 40s and 50s, there was not just one league for women, the AAGPBL. There was a rival league formed because of the AAGPBL. Everybody trying to get a piece of the pie. Right. Because as we stated, the AAGPBL is a Midwest, was a Midwest league. And they recruited heavily in Chicago. And they recruited, they tried to recruit a bunch, they recruited a bunch of players from the Chicago Softball League called the Metropolitan League. But for those of y'all from Huntsville that listen to this, it's like the Kiwana Sportsplex League. Yeah. The Quad Sportsplex League, which they have cool bleachers because they're like all on the top. Oh, they're elevated? Yeah, they're it's always elevated. cool to play there when I was playing travel ball tournaments when we were in that intermediate field. Yeah. That was, you know, but it, it's really cool. But um, because the players of the Metropolitan League were leaving droves to play for the AAGPBL, they decided to form their own league. And it was a 16 league called the National Girls Baseball League, which began in 1944. And Stayed until 1954, just like the All-American Girls Special Baseball League. It was a rival league, and it was basically in the Chicago area. All the teams were in the Chicago area. So it seems that women's baseball was just Chicago-oriented. Yeah, it was a Chicago-oriented league, which, just like the softball league before it, you know. And there was a bunch of... So this is this is interesting. The CEO of the league, he wasn't the founder. It was Emery Parachi and Charles Bidwell. They founded the league. But the CEO of the league was legendary football Hall of Famer Red Grange. You know, played at the University of Illinois. I believe he played for Chicago Bears too. Yeah, Chicago Bears. I mean, just a, a legend in football history. 
he was the CEO of the National Girls Baseball League. You know, I would love to read a biography on Rick Graves and see like what his role was and what he did and what the players thought of him. I mean, that would be if I get my hands on a Red Grange biography and they mention in some detail about what his role was in the league, then I would totally check that out, man. Because I'm like, that's interesting. That's something I did not know about Red Grange. Just write one. Yeah, I could write one about Red Grange, but you know, I'm more of a, I mean, I'm more of a baseball guy. But I, yeah, Red Grange is great, man. He was he was the galloping ghost. You know, great guy. Just write one. Yeah. Anyway, and so some of the teams in this league. The main team that has been there for all all eleven seasons from forty four to fifty four were the Bloomer Girls, and then you have Bluebird. I mean, just I guess they didn't have like city names, but I guess you know, I guess they're just, they're all in Chicago. Bloomer Girls, Bluebirds, Chicks, Candy Kids, Sparks, Queens. Yeah, and that league used a twelve um, inch ball. Yeah. We mentioned the rules earlier. They used a twelve inch ball. Yeah, and um, the uniforms were long knee socks and jerseys over long sleeves and shorts as opposed to a dress. Mm-hmm. So we're a little more progressive. Yeah, and then like you know, music maids, cardinals, sea cashers, rockolas, I mean bells, I mean you know, just stars, all stars, jewels. I mean it's just you know, and they, so do you think it was more like it's like a more flashy version of the all American girls league? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, at least it sounds like it. Anyway, and then they played in a bunch of stadiums around Chicago. They played at Soldier Field, the football stadium, where the Bears play. You remember a few years ago they played that baseball game at, um, was it the L.A. Coliseum? Yeah. And they had the weirdest short porch fence? Yeah. I imagine it going like that. Yeah, the Dodgers played, well. They played the Giants there, right? They played Do- Giants or Yankees. So they play- it was an exhibition game. Yeah. In 2008, they did that to mark the 50th anniversary of the Dodgers in, in L.A. Because they played in, 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 uh, at the L.A. Coliseum before they went to Dodger Stadium. It wasn't built yet. There. And now NASCAR's got a damn NASCAR track paved around the right. L.A. Coliseum. Yeah. I will say the Chicago Bears at that time in the 40s did not play at Soldier Field. They played at Wrigley Field. So I don't know what Soldier Field looked like in the 40s. But surely it doesn't look like what it does today. <laughs> but well, still, they got a new Soldier Field today, right? Yeah, well, it was we're on Soldier Field Two, kind of so, like St. Louis is. Yeah, with yeah. Uh, Bush Two. Yeah, and it was. It's just yeah. I gotta see pictures of this because it's just hard to fathom playing baseball at Soldier Field, and they also played at Wrigley Field too. So they shared it with the Cubs and the Bears. Yeah, but the um, National National Girls Baseball League, um, their first year in '44, they had four teams. The Bloomer Girls, the Bluebirds, the Chicks, the Candy Kids, Candy spelled with a K, yeah. and the Sparks. That sounds like a damn Huntsville Parks and Recreation softball league. Yeah. With them candy names. And the next year, we added the Music Maids in, and the Candy Kids became the Queens. Yeah. So they were very a lot more, I guess, for lack of a better term. In 2022, it's tough to use the term feminist, but they were a lot more feminist, more feminine forward in their naming of their teams. Yeah. I mean, and then uh, some of the champions. So, like, the first one was Bratches Candy Kids, which I have to assume the Bratches Candy Company sponsored the team. That would be my guess. And then the Chicago Bluebirds, once up. And so Emery Parachi, the one of the founders, 
his team was the Bloomer Girls. It was called Parachies Bloomer Girls, and they won, won they won two championships. And then, and then it, I guess it became the Wilson Jones Bloomer Girls in, in the last year. But you know, I guess different companies and different people sponsored these teams, and you know, and so okay, this is interesting. Woody English, former Cub player in the 20s and 30s, he ma- he was a manager for one of these teams, and you're not going to believe this. One of the one of the Black Sox, Bucky Weaver, man was a manager on one of these teams. <laughs> that you learn something new every day, man. And Connie Wisniewski also played in this league too. So they talk about baseball's an onion. Baseball's an onion. You learn something new every day, and this is something I didn't know that this other league existed in the 40s. I'm sure the Baseball Hall of Fame has mentioned it in the women's exhibit. I have to go look at it again. I don't know all the exhibits by heart, but, man, that, that this blows my mind. This is, you know, I, I'm, pr- I'm a proud person. I, I like to know baseball history. I don't know every asset of baseball history, and it's good to learn some new information. And this is my moment of this. I had no idea. So this, that this is awesome, man. I mean, I, you know, somebody should write a book about this league. You know, <laughs> maybe I will one day. Who knows? But still, this nothing is really stopping me. Nothing stopping me. So this is really interesting. So, and also on to to end it. Well, to kind of end it for our Huntsville and Alabama listeners, there were two players in the AAGPBL from Alabama. One of them was Margaret Holgerson, who was from Mobile, and apparently her nickname was Mobile. And Dolores Dolly Brumfield, who was from Pritchard, which is a suburb of Mobile. And you don't want to go to Pritchard. It's not a good town, but, you know. And they played in – they th- those are our two Alabama connections to the league. You know, and so Dolly – Those people in – both of them had already moved up north to pursue softball. Right. And so here's the thing. Yeah. Dolly Broomfield, so she was born in 1932. Her first year was in 1947. She was tw- she was 15 playing in this league with the South Bend Blue Sox. And she, she was an infielder. She played first base, second base, third base. So it's kind of like the gymnastics in the Olympics. Everybody there making money from the foreign countries is damn – 15 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and we got 18-year-olds over here from us. So, yeah, she played from 47 to 53 for the, the South Bend Blue Sox, Nurse Comets, and the Fort Wayne Daisies. And later, I believe she became the softball coach of Henderson State University in Arkansas, which I know Henderson State because UNA and Henderson State were in the same conference my first two years at UNA. And – they named the softball field after her at Henderson State. So that's really cool, you know. And the second the second uh, Alabama connection, Margaret Holgerson, her main name was Silvesteri, and she went by Mobile because she was from Mobile. So that's pretty cool. I mean, you know, she was a pitcher. In her first year, she was second base and pitcher, but her majority of her career, she was a pitcher. And she paid from 46 to 52 for the Rockford Peaches, the Muskegon Lassies, the Grand Rapids Chicks, and I had the Grand Rapids Chicks. And, um, you know, 
you know, I'm looking at her stats right now on the, on the AGPBL website. You know, and they're pretty good. Like, you know, her best season, at least win percentage-wise, was in 1951. She went 16-6. and six, And she struck out 123 batters, only walked 77, and had 1.53 ERA. So, you know, Patrick and I being Alabama guys, with something like this, it's good to find it, it, out of curiosity to find if there's an Alabama connection. Like, you know, obviously there's a lot more major leaguers from Alabama than AAGPBL players. But it's good to go because these – Well, it's lasted a lot longer. Baseball has been around since the 1800s. Yeah. Late 1800s as we know it. And then you got the modern era. And I know four major leaguers off my hand that I know personally. Right. That's impressive. Or at least former major leaguers. Yeah. I got one still in there, Craig Campbell. You know Buddy Boshears? Yeah. Yeah. I know him from Lee also. Um, neither one of them know me as much as I know them. But Right. Well, I mean, you know, they were older. They know my name. Yeah, they, they are aware of you. <laughs> and I'm aware of them. They're yeah, aware of your um, existence, you know. And then um, a couple of other guys I played college ball with that didn't make it. But yeah. So... But I don't know anybody other than Craig currently. No. So the reason, so we got to talk about why they the league collapsed, like or the, went out of business. I don't think we talked about it, did we? We did not. So basically, the main reason why the basically the main reason why the league disbanded in 1954 is because year after the peak. Attendance of 910,000 collectively in 1948. Attendance continued to drop. The interest began to wane. And it didn't help after the 50 season when the directors, the team directors, voted to purchase the AAGPBL from Arthur Meyerhoff and operate the teams independently along with, you know, the revenue and whatnot. That didn't help much either. It didn't. It really didn't do much to stem the bleeding of all these teams, all the attendance going down, and you know, and of course the advent of television in the fifties, televised baseball games that also hurt the girls' league as well as minor league baseball. You know, a lot of leagues went out of business in the fifties. So a combination of that and then trying to find, you know, talented women baseball players are still not easy to find because talented softball players, you know, they needed the training experience to get used to baseball. And, of course, with the changing rules over the, the history of the league, you know, and the ball getting smaller and, you know, doing overhand more. And they just couldn't, you know. The money was drying up and teams just folded. You know, 52, there was only six teams. And then 53, uh, and then 54, there was only five teams. The last season, they only had five teams. Fort Wayne, South Bend, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, and Rockford. And by then, it was just, you know, it was time to end it. And it's sad. But Major League Baseball came back. Major League Baseball came back. You know, especially after they integrated the game, but that's that's a whole other ball game. That's a whole other story. But uh, you know, just like I said, the advent of television and just waning interest in women baseball caused the end of the 
the American Girls Professional Baseball League as well as the the rival league with Fred Grange. You know, I'm just it was just not gonna it, it just wasn't built to last. You know. So but we have this awesome history. It is baseball history. It is interesting and I would highly recommend everybody to read up on it. You know, I'm going to be perfectly honest. Before this episode, in my years of learning about baseball history, I didn't really pay much interest to the women's baseball. Now, I mean, I, I knew the teams. I've seen the movie. I knew about other players, you know, like Alter Weiss, Jackie Mitchell, uh, more recent Monet Davis. And then there was that one girl who – there was that one pitcher for the Colorado Silver Bullets – that was a that was a traveling uh, women's baseball team in the nineties. But again, that's another subject. Anyway, women play baseball, you know, and of course we got Jessica Mendoza calling games and Melanie Newman calling games and the manager for the Tampa Tarpons now, you know. Women in baseball is important and it needs to be talked about. One hundred percent. Yeah, and that's all I really have to say about it. It was just Um, before we get out of here, I want everybody at home to know. There is a website for the All American Girl Baseball League, AAGPBL.org. And they have a lot of historical facts, photos. Uh, you can donate to keep that history alive. Mm-hmm. And then um, the National Girls Baseball League.com for the rival group. Um, and their advertising on the website is called Their Turn It Back, which is a uh, Netflix documentary about their league. Um, so, if y'all enjoy this episode or are interested in learning more about this, these are two places you can just do such a thing. Yep. Um, you got anything else to add? No, I think we covered it all. All right. As always, thank everybody for listening to us. I appreciate y'all, appreciate y'all helping us grow. Um, as always, you can email us at baseballhis101 at gmail.com if you have a topic you want to hear. Still haven't heard from any of y'all. Um, we have a and we're available on everything. Y'all can stream stuff on, so share it to your friends. If they can't find it, they don't have Spotify or they don't have Apple, they can find us on something. Yep, like so, uh, the, the one that Russell uses. <laughs> I don't remember that one. Yeah, Russell, whatever. Love you, Russell. One day, one day we're probably going to get all. You know, when we get our social media pages up, we're going to get all the links to all the sites that we're on, and we're going to have it. But we'll probably make the link tree or something, and be like, "Hey, that's what we need to do. We need to get on Twitter with our something with the link tree, and be like, hey, this is our sites. If you can't listen to us on Spotify, you have other options, and then we can grow the fan base more. So you know, I mean, just." It's all good, guys. It's all good. I'm not catering to Russell because he sucks. <laughs> all right. Um, as always, guys, we appreciate y'all so much. Thank you. Um, we're having fun doing this. I hope y'all are having as much fun listening. Yeah. And until next time, I'm Patrick DeVault. And I'm Matthew Carter. The Wiz Kids had won it. Bobby Thompson had done it, and Yogi read the comics all the while. Rock and roll was being born, marijuana we would scorn. So down on the corner, the national pastime went on trial. We're talking baseball.
baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming in. Kiner and Midget Goodell, the Thumper and Mel Parnell, and Ike was the only one winning down in Washington. I'm talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the Scooter, the Barber, and the Duke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Now my old friend, the bachelor, well, he swore he was the Oklahoma kid. And Cookie played hooky to go and see the Duke. And me, I always loved Willie, man, those were the Well, now it's the 80s, and Brett is the greatest, and Bobby Bonds can play for everyone. Rose is at the vet, Rusty again is a Met, and the great Alexander is pitching again in Washington. I'm talking baseball, like Reggie Quees and Barry, talking baseball, Carew and Gaylord Perry, Siva, Garvey, Schmidt, and by the blue. They'll be with Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Say hey, say hey, say hey. It was Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Say hey, say hey, say hey. I'm talking with. Say hey, say hey, say hey, say hey.